Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Welcome to the Audio Information Network of Colorado's High Country News Program. I'm KG Greenspun, finishing up the February edition. Under reportage, going with the flow, an experiment in combating erosion could shape a new era of coastal resilience. Story by Sarah Trent. David Cottrell stood on what used to be a 14-foot-high cliff at the crumbled end of Blue Pacific Drive. Just a few years ago, this was the fastest eroding shoreline on the U.S. Pacific Coast. Locals here in North Cove, Washington, dubbed it Washaway Beach. But as Cottrell walked toward the water on a sunny November morning, he stepped not off a cliff, but onto soft, dry sand. Thigh-high dune grasses sprawled in all directions. The low tide lapped at a flock of sandpipers a few hundred feet away. Cottrell, a cranberry farmer and local drainage commissioner, held up a laminated map pointing to our location. During his childhood, this was part of a dense beachside neighborhood, but the tides have swept most of it away, a complex phenomenon related to dams and jetties that have changed the flow of sediments. Where we're standing right now, we're losing 50 to 100 feet a year, he said. All told, North Cove has lost more than four square miles of land, plus a lighthouse, a cannery, and 160 structures. By 2015, many residents had given up on saving their town. Facing predictions of continued erosion, agencies had begun talk of moving Highway 105 away from the coast, a loss that could doom this isolated rural community. An essential transportation artery, 105 serves as a dike that protects 800 acres of historic bogs where Cottrell and other farmers grow more than half the state's cranberries. Cottrell felt he had to try something. We had absolutely nothing to lose, he said. So in 2016, Cottrell dropped $400 worth of rocks from the end of this road, one load right off the end, just to see what would happen. He sought to mimic the cobble beaches and basalt slides that are common in the Pacific Northwest. That experiment has since grown into a more than two-kilometer-long berm of rocks and stumps that shift with the waves and collect sand, rebuilding the beach. As a result, much of this coastline has held, putting North Cove at the forefront of a global shift in how communities protect their coastlines as sea levels rise. Engineers, who have long depended on rigid seawalls, are now closely watching this softer approach. North Cove's solution, which resembles the techniques many indigenous communities use to cultivate shellfish, looks less like the conventional structures engineers know and more like the dunes and berms that centuries of storms and tides build on their own. Cottrell stood in the salty breeze wearing his signature black Carhartt jacket, 
On the back, hand-painted letters read, Wash away no more. Most days he walks the beach, troubleshooting the remaining hot spots with landowners and explaining the still-evolving project to visitors. The people that get this best are surfers and Buddhists, Cottrell had told me earlier. In a situation that's in constant flux, what you want to do is position yourself to go with it. North Cove was built on land near the Columbia River outlet that has always been at the mercy of intense waves. El Nino-driven storms, tidal currents, flowing sediment, and tangles of driftwood. Over millennia, these forces built a a long, sandy spit at the mouth of Willapa Bay. Storms swept sand away each winter, then currents replenished it each summer. Until they didn't, Cottrell said, for reasons scientists are only beginning to understand. Maps show that the trend had started by the early 1900s. Researchers believe a series of jetties and the 1930s damming of the Columbia, which both changed sediment flow in the region, contributed to it. Over decades, the spit was whittled down to a nub. The rising tides and intensifying storms of climate change only hastened its undoing. That collision of forces made Washaway Beach a terrible candidate for any protective efforts, Washington Department of Ecology Coastal Engineer George Kaminsky told me. But since Cottrell couldn't make anything worse, he decided to try something unorthodox, setting the stage for an experiment whose results global experts, including Kaminsky, are now researching. After Cottrell dropped that first load of rock, nature took over. When waves hit the pile, the water spread out instead of smashing against a steep, eroded bank. Stones migrated and settled, sand collected in between. This galvanized the community, and in 2016, a group led by Charlene Nelson, chairwoman of the nearby Shoalwater Bay tribe, expanded the project. Using a $600,000 state grant, they made a scrappy version of what engineers call a dynamic revetment, a long cobble berm along the top of the beach. Using the cheapest unsorted rock they could find, they dumped piles along more than a mile of the bank, letting the waves sort them into place. Then, lower down near the highest average water line, they spread the same jagged cobbles into a three-foot-tall speed bump. Together, these structures build back the beach, As waves trip over the speed bump and slosh through the berm, they slow and drop sand. The first year, both were in place. The beach near this road end grew by about 50 feet. The next year, it kept growing. As climate change progresses, coastal communities nearly everywhere are searching for solutions. Hard barriers like seawalls and riprap won't cut it in many places. They do block water, but often cause further erosion. They're also so expensive that few can afford them. U.S. climate models show sea level rise locked in at around a foot on average nationwide by 2050. 
in Washington alone that is forecast to cause billions in damage. By 2100, the state experts, the state expects catastrophic land loss, including 44% of tidal flats and 65% of estuarine beaches at key sites along the coast, places that myriad coastal species, including humans, rely on for food and protection. Coastal resilience experts believe building beaches back could be enough to prevent some of this. Kaminsky's research on the berm has already influenced projects nearby and in California, Europe, and Guam. Together, these experiments promise to transform the tools that agencies and communities can apply elsewhere. To create any protective structure, engineers need design standards. The data to establish them didn't exist until communities like North Cove started trying. If you've not been out here, it's hard to wrap your brain about what's really going on. Lauren Bornschmidt, a State Department of Fish and Wildlife Biologist, said, standing on loose cobble. After working with Cottrell for five years, she was due to issue him a new maintenance permit and needed her boss's sign-off. She and Cottrell were also trying to drum up more funding and buy-in from the many agencies involved, so they had assembled a cadre of colleagues to bring them up to speed. On this breezy blue-sky morning near the road end, the once-threatening waterline was hundreds of feet out. The speed bump, Cottrell told the group, was buried under three feet of sand. Clam beds, long absent, have returned, along with grasses and shorebird habitat. And even when winter storms pull sand away, the way of things here... The cobble remains to restart the beach building process. Now that this section of shore seems stable, Cottrell said, my hope is that this is hands-off forever. But down the beach, trouble spots remain. Farther south, the beach narrowed until it reached a prominent finger of land, a single home atop it. That has so far defied the tides. Surrounded by a seawall of giant boulders, it has become a landmark at the center of this project. Even that day's gentle waves deflected off the wall toward the banks beside it. Stronger ones have carved deeply into the adjacent shoreline, threatening to turn the point into an island. A reminder of the pitfalls of bulwark structures in a naturally ephemeral environment. The worst erosion was on the southern side. There, a vertical cliff edge flanked a narrow curve of beach. Over the previous year, seven spruce trees on that neighboring property had lost their footing, toppling into the surf. An eighth leaned ominously. This vulnerable strip of land owned by Ed Borden has become a linchpin for North Cove. From here to the highway is about 400 feet, Cottrell said. That could go in one or two nights in a big storm. With it would go the roadway, homes, and cranberry bogs behind it. Cottrell hopes to drop more cobble around the wall to reestablish a beach which would slow the waves or even prevent them from reaching the seawall. 
At the edge of his land, Borden stacked hay bales with a mini excavator, hoping they too might slow the ocean's inland creep. Throughout the year, Borden and Cottrell had dumped thousands of tons of cobble along the spank, but the wash off the seawall was too strong. Despite, maybe because of, its impact here, that wall remained a seductive solution. Borden eyed the fortress, which stood deceptively steady. He wasn't sure yet about the small cobbles. He had yet to see whether they worked as planned. I need a bigger excavator, bigger rock, he started to explain. Or we could get you your sand beach back, Cottrell countered, glancing to the surf. Nothing dissipates wave energy like a good beach. And now let's go over to facts and figures. Save public lands. Put solar on Walmart. Parking lots and big box stores' roofs could generate oodles of clean power. By Jonathan Thompson. On a sunny day in early December, Interior Secretary Deb Holland stood on a dais outside the Phoenix exurb of Buckeye, Arizona, where about 3,000 acres of desert had been scraped clean and leveled to make way for the Sonoran Solar Project, which will soon provide power to some 91,000 homes. Holland came with good news for utility, scale, solar, and climate hawks. The Bureau of Land Management would review three massive solar projects proposed in Arizona and hope to expedite permitting for solar energy on federal lands in Arizona, California, Nevada, New Mexico, and Utah. Solar energy projects on public lands will help communities across the country be a part of the climate solution while creating good-paying jobs, Holland said. But these projects could also potentially uproot, imperil Joshua trees and cactus, kill or displace threatened desert tortoises, block wildlife migratory paths, and harm local communities. This puts conservationists and policymakers in the difficult position of having to choose between saving the desert or the planet. There are other ways, however, and other locations for solar panels, from residential rooftops to farm fields fallowed by drought. France, for instance, recently required large parking lots to be covered by solar canopies that shade cars and provide up to 11 gigawatts of new generating capacity, equivalent to about 10 times the three proposed projects in Arizona. This inspired us to ask how much power could be generated by slapping solar panels not only over the West's vast parking lots, but also on its 21,000 big box store rooftops. We did the math, and this is what we found out. Big box stores have plenty of space. An average Walmart has 180,000 square feet of rooftop, about the size of three football fields. That amount of rooftop space could support enough solar energy to power nearly 200 homes. 21,363 is the number of big box stores in the western U.S., 
31,035,098 megawatt hours is the estimated total annual energy output if solar arrays were installed on all those stores' rooftops. 3 million homes that could be powered by that output. 4,889 megawatts potential generating capacity if solar panels covered all 3,000 big box stores rooftops in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. 901 megawatts current total installed solar generating capacity in those states. 2,602 megawatts is the potential generating capacity if solar panels covered every rooftop on Arizona's 2,288 big box stores. 2,360 megawatts, Arizona's current total installed solar generating capacity. 1,200 megawatts potential generating capacity of three solar projects currently proposed for 7,900 acres of public land in Arizona. 16,000 or 16,477,306 megawatt hours is the total energy output of Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant in 2020. 14,905,215 megawatt-hours estimated total annual energy output if solar arrays were installed on all of California's 10,260 big-box store rooftops. Notable utility-scale solar projects in the West. Gemini Solar, number one. The 690-megawatt Gemini Solar Project, currently being developed on 7,100 acres of federal land, will be able to power as many as 400,000 homes during peak output. An estimated 219 desert tortoises will be relocated during its development. 2. Project Nexus The Turlock Irrigation District is covering about 2 miles of canals with solar panels to generate power and prevent the evaporation of an estimated 32 million gallons of water annually. 3. Oberon Solar In July, the Biden administration gave the go-ahead to this 500-megawatt project on 2,600 acres of federal land. Number four, Rexford 1 and 2. This massive proposed solar project will be built mostly on agricultural fields that have been fallowed due to drought. The 4,000-acre project, which is expected to generate 1,200 megawatts when completed in 2026, will also create income for farmers. Number five is the Yellow Pine Solar. This 500-megawatt installation on 3,000 acres of public land has been especially controversial since many of the desert tortoises relocated before construction later died. Number six is the Battleborn Solar, which is canceled. 
this proposed 850-megawatt project on 9,000 acres of public land atop Mormon Mesa was killed by opposition from land art lovers, off-roaders, and skydivers. 7. Jove Solar The BLM is about to begin reviewing a proposed 600-megawatt photovoltaic installation on about 3,500 acres of public land. 44,800 megawatts is the potential generating capacity of solar canopies covered Los Angeles County's 18.6 million parking spaces. 15,400 megawatts is the potential generating capacity if solar panels covered all 3,495 miles of California's aqueducts and canals. 14,300 megawatts current total installed solar generating capacity on the entire California grid. 1,155 megawatts is the estimated generating capacity if solar panels covered all 370 miles of the Los Angeles aqueduct as LA officials propose. 37,500 gigawatt hours per year is the energy output of solar canopies if all of Phoenix, Arizona's 12.2 million parking spots were covered. 139 is the number of desert tortoises relocated to make way for the Yellow Pine Solar Project in southern Nevada in 2021. Within a few weeks, 30 of them were killed possibly by badgers. 4,200 or 215,000 acres are the grazing leases bought and retired in the Mojave Desert in California by Avantis this year to protect wildlife habitat and Joshua trees. The Onyx Conservation Project is a partnership with federal and state land management agencies to offset the impacts of the company's developments elsewhere in the region. 1.3 million is the estimated number of Joshua trees destroyed by the 2020 Dome Fire, thought to be exacerbated by climate change in the Mojave National Preserve in California. And in very small print, they talk about all where they got these facts and figures. But with a couple of minutes left, let's go to Herd Around the West by Tiffany Midge. In California, the city of love, San Francisco seems like the last place you'd expect to find killer police robots surveying, surveilling the streets. Yet in December, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted to allow armed bots to join the police department's bomb disposal arsenal. Not surprisingly, everyone who has ever watched Black Mirror or any of a hundred other dystopian sci-fi movies objected. Ars Technica reports that 44 community and civil rights groups, including the ACLU, signed a letter saying there's no basis to believe that robots toting explosives might be an exception to police overuse of deadly force. Using bombs that are designed to disarm bombs to instead deliver them is a perfect example of this pattern of escalation and of the militarization of the police force. The Board of Supervisors 
quickly backtracked and banned the use of lethal robots, at least for now. Does everyone feel safer? And in New Mexico, it was an old-fashioned treasure hunt that inspired podcasts, misfortune, books, chasing the thrill, and numerous articles, not to mention speculation and a lot of controversy. What is a treasure chest worth today, anyway? Some unlucky seekers paid for this one with their lives. In 2010, Forrest Fenn, a Santa Fe art dealer and author, buried his trove somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, with the only clue being a 24-line poem, and the hunt began. One man served time in prison for digging up graves at Yellowstone National Park, outside reported, while five people died while looking for the cash. Jack Stoof, a 32-year-old medical student from Michigan, finally found Fenn's trove in 2020 and sold it to Tesoro Sagrado Holdings, LLC, Dallas-based Heritage Auctions, then auctioned the contents off. Highlights include a 549-gram Alaskan gold nugget that sold for a whopping $55,200, a disguise grater chirliki frog pendant from Costa Rica or Panama, circa 700-1000 A.D., and a gold pectoral from Colombia, 200-600 A.D., among 46... 476 other items, including gold jewelry and coins. The most unusual item? Fenn's 20,000-word autobiography, printed in text so tiny it required a magnifying glass to decipher. Fenn's 2010 memoir, The Thrill of the Chase, explained that he included the autobiography, sealed in a glass jar, because... Maybe the lucky finder would want to know a little about the foolish person who abandoned such an opulent cash. The manuscript sold for $48,000. Altogether, the 476 items brought in $1,307,946. Enough to buy a lot of frog pendants. But let's hope the goods aren't under a curse. We've all seen that movie, too. And that's the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining me. You're listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.